You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. This is a big summer for Joel Crank of Colorado Springs. He is a delegate to this week's Republican National Convention. And not long after he comes back, he'll attend his first year of college. Crank is 18. He plans to study business at Colorado State University. He says if things go well for Republicans this year, he'll have done his part and won't seek a career in politics. And we spoke before he headed to Cleveland. Joel, welcome to the program. Hi, thanks for having me on. You enter the convention as a delegate for Ted Cruz. Do you feel he's a better candidate for president than Donald Trump? Yeah, I do. I was on the Cruz bandwagon. I believe Cruz was a constitutional conservative, and I thought that was what we needed in Washington. But uh, right now, I guess that it's not looking like Cruz is going to be our guy. Well, how do you feel about Donald Trump? Um, obviously, he wasn't my favorite candidate. However, I will support him after he is nominated as the Republican nominee because I think he's much better than Hillary Clinton. So in that case, is it the lesser of two evils? Is, is that how you would describe it? At this point, I think it's more about the Supreme Court and the justices who get nominated and whether we're going to have 30 to 50 years of liberal Supreme Court justices or conservative Supreme Court justices. How do you know that you can trust what Donald Trump says? You know, he's been pro-choice in the past. Measurements of his veracity show him to be not most times telling the truth. That's according to PolitiFact, which verifies claims, statements. Uh, so how do you know that uh, this, this man that you are placing your trust in will follow through on what you think that he will? You know, again, I think it comes down to the fact that we've seen time and time again Hillary Clinton go back on her word, change what she said. I mean, Donald Trump has done the same thing, and lots of human beings have done this, where they say one thing and then later they have a change of opinion. But I think Donald Trump is, of the two remaining options, I think you're right in saying that he's the lesser of two evils, but I also support him. So you have said that you wouldn't stay in politics beyond this, I suppose, directly. If America becomes amazing again, what does that mean to you, Joel Crank? It's conservative values reigning in America. It would be an America where capitalism is the true means to success, where I'm 18 years old and I'm not paying thousands of dollars in taxes at the end of the year. And right now, that's where America is. It's an America where the Second Amendment isn't taken lightly. It's something where the freedom of speech isn't trumped because college kids are offended by it and they need their safe place. That's the America I want. How have your Second Amendment rights been breached? Um, I think the limiting of the size of a magazine in a firearm the attempts to stop semi-automatic weapons. Um, I saw the other day a bill that the liberal side of Congress is trying to pass would take out semi-automatic weapons, and that's ridiculous. Um, I use a semi-automatic shotgun when I go pheasant hunting, and let me tell you, I've never shot someone, not once in my life. The Democratic Party is committing to tuition-free education at in-state colleges and universities for eligible families. It occurs to me that uh, you're headed into college, and I wonder if that 
part of the Democratic platform was at all attractive to you? Well, I mean, at a surface level, of course, free stuff sounds great, doesn't it? But in the end, it doesn't exist. And it's just deferring my college tuition till when I'm an adult. So I'd rather just pay my dues now, pay for college, and then not later have the burden of paying for other people to go to college, because that's how this would work. If you are someone of means, uh, should you help someone who is without them to go to college? Well, it depends. It's It shouldn't be forced upon you by the government. And I would love for more donations through churches, more donations through charitable organizations, but it shouldn't be forced upon you by the government. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're speaking with 18-year-old Joel Crank of Colorado Springs. He's a delegate to this week's Republican National Convention. There was a story in the New York Times last week about crafting the Republican Party platform. It said the platform amounts to a rightward lurch, even from the party's hardline platform of 2012, especially, said the Times, as it addresses gay men, lesbians, and transgender people. Log Cabin Republicans, it's a gay Republican group, says the GOP platform is the most anti-LGBT in the party's history. And Trump has chosen Indiana Governor Mike Pence as a running mate who has fought against gay marriage. Uh, Polls consistently show that younger people are quicker to embrace equal rights for gay people. And so because you're 18, I'm curious on your perspective. Well, you know what? It's a life choice. It's not my life choice. People are entitled because we live in America America, to be free. They should be allowed to make that choice. But what we should do in America is we should take marriage completely out of the hands of government, record civil partnerships, but marriage should be an institution for the churches, not for government. To go back to that idea of choice, did you choose to be straight? Well, I chose to be straight, yeah. Um, As opposed to choosing to be gay, yes. At what age did that choice come? Um, When I hit puberty, when I... I've never been a homosexual. This is... This is just uh, interest in females that I've had my entire life. So it wasn't a choice. So it was. It was a choice. I could make the choice to become gay, but I did not. Uh, The convention has the potential to become very contentious. Is there any part of you that feels uh, overwhelmed by this position of delegate? Absolutely. This convention, I can't believe some of the things that are going on. Um, It's going to be a convention of the century. It's going to be absolutely something that nobody has ever seen before. And yeah, there's a little bit of pressure that comes with that. I'm excited, don't get me wrong, but also a little bit uh, intimidated. Politics may be in your DNA, Joel. Your father, Jeff, is uh, now a radio talk show host in Colorado Springs. He ran for Congress twice but lost. How much uh, of that has to do with your decision to try and avoid politics in the long term? Um, it has and it hasn't. I've grown up watching my dad be involved in politics and seen all of the things he's done and tried to do to help his country. And... 
uh, it's inspired me to get involved in politics. Now, obviously, because I'm a business major, that was my first interest. I loved the world of business. But that led itself into politics, and that led itself into the wonders of capitalism and it being the only route to economic success. And watching my father and seeing what he's done has inspired me to enter the world of politics, and I think it's my own free will that wants me to help and then leave help once and then leave. my job is done. All right. And will you campaign for Trump? Uh, it's one thing to say you'll support him. Do you think you'll you know, do some shoe leather for him? Uh, most likely. Um, like I said, this is an important election, and I think that a Republican needs to be elected to the presidency. Thanks so much for being with us, Joel. Absolutely. 18-year-old Joel Crank of Colorado Springs is a delegate to his first Republican National Convention taking place this week in Cleveland. Next week, we'll speak with a Democratic delegate. This will be Polly Baca's 14th National Convention. And we'll be right back with how a concealed carry weapons permit changes a traffic stop, if at all. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Applications for concealed carry permits in Colorado have spiked this year. In Minnesota, of course, Philando Castile had such a permit when he was stopped by an officer earlier this month. His girlfriend, who was also in the car, says Castile announced he legally had a gun before the officer killed him. It made us wonder what people in Colorado should do if they're pulled over with a legally concealed weapon. Gary Barber leads the Colorado Association of Chiefs of Police and is the chief in Frederick, Colorado. That's in Weld County. He joins us also just days after two attacks on police in Dallas and, of course, more recently over the weekend in Baton Rouge. And, Chief, welcome to the program. Thank you, Ryan. Glad to be here. And before we get to concealed carry, let me ask if you've had conversations with other chiefs or with your own officers uh, since, as I said most recently, those three policemen were gunned down this weekend in Baton Rouge. Well, we certainly have. Uh, I've talked with my officers about it. I've talked with other chiefs. Uh, We have, of course, been appalled by what happened in Dallas and, again, what happened in Baton Rouge. Uh, it's, It's very concerning. But on the other hand, we also have felt a lot of support from our community. How has that manifested? Well, I'll tell you, we get a lot of sweets delivered to the police department. Sweets. Cookies, cakes, flowers, cards, you name it. What have the conversations with other chiefs and with your officers sounded like? Uh, This is by nature and and always has been uh, a profession with certain hazards that we're aware of and we're trained for. And we know what we're supposed to do and how we're supposed to keep ourselves alert and aware of situations we're in. But these things that happened in Dallas and in Baton Rouge are, those are ambush attacks. And uh, ambush attacks are not unknown in police work, but uh, there's not a whole lot that you can do about it. It's, uh, it's very unfortunate, but we can't go around in an armored car all day long. In Frederick, do you feel less safe? No. Frederick is a very safe community. Uh, We have a great deal of public support there. And we will continue to provide the service that we're supposed to do. 
Let me just ask if after the shootings of citizens in Baton Rouge and in St. Paul, whether those spurred conversations as well with either your officers or other chiefs in the state? Well, anytime there's uh, a high-profile event like that that's on the news, uh, we all wonder, okay, how did that happen? And, And what is the real story behind it? And I don't think on either of those we know what the reports are going to reveal in terms of what the facts are. All we know is what we've heard on the news, and and we'll have to wait and see. Well, one element of the situation in Minnesota with Philando Castile was this concealed carry permit and his announcement that he had one. And uh, this is what got us wondering about the rules or the expectations in Colorado. So uh, let me just ask, if you've got a concealed permit in this state, and you are pulled over by police, do you have an obligation to hand over that permit, say, with your driver's license? No. Uh, if you're asked for your permit, in other words, if you've told the officer you have a concealed weapon and you have a permit for it, you are required by law to show the permit to the officer if that's requested. Hmm. Uh, but there's no requirement that you tell the officer you have a permit if the situation is such that you're going to have to reveal uh, your person, you're going to have to take your jacket off, and there's going to be a visible sign that you have a concealed weapon on you, then you need to announce that and let them know what's going on before you get to the point where it becomes revealed. That is to say, there's no law dictating this, but you're saying it's a, it's a wise idea to announce if the gun especially would be revealed, that that would just be a safe practice, you're saying? Yes, All right. Now, when you pull someone over, you run their license plate before approaching their car, right? Yes, indeed. Okay. And does that check reveal whether someone has a concealed carry permit? No, it does not. Ah. A driver's license check at one time may have revealed that a person had a concealed weapons permit because there at one time was a matchup between those indexes uh, through our criminal justice information system in Colorado. But that is no longer the case. The law that required that uh, expired, and uh, I don't believe there is any longer any such connection. Is that something that you wish still existed, or does it not make a material difference at a traffic stop? It it really does not. Um, and people with concealed weapons permits really are not a matter of great concern to us. Tell us why. Uh, First of all, they've gone through a very extensive background investigation by the sheriff of the county in which they got the permit. Uh, They only get to keep the permit if they continue to have a good record. Uh, If there is anything they become involved in, such as domestic violence, such as carrying the weapon while they're uh, under the influence of alcohol, they can lose that permit immediately. Uh, They have to renew it at the end of five years. So folks with a concealed weapons permit have been very thoroughly checked, and it's fairly clear that they don't present a problem. I don't know of any issues that we've had with concealed weapons permit holders in Weld County. This speaks to something that we heard from a journalist named Corey Hutchins. He wrote about his experience as a concealed weapons permit holder. And he says when an officer stops him for a traffic violation, he always hands over 
his concealed weapons permit. I've got my license on top, my concealed weapons permit underneath the license, and then my uh, insurance card under that. And I've got both hands on the wheel, and in one hand, in my left hand, I've, I've got those licenses, and I hand it to him. You know why I pulled you over? Yeah, I said last time. I said, yeah, I know what I did there. I just did a U-turn at intersection. And uh, he took the license and the permit and, and the insurance card, and he said, uh, do you have a firearm in your car? Something like that. And I said, nope. And he said, okay, give me a few minutes. And he came back and he gave me a warning. Now, I don't know why. <laughs> uh, my sis, my, you know, I don't know if I, if I didn't have that permit, if I would have gotten a warning or not. Um, all I can say is that when I was in college, I had a pretty poor driving record for a while. And um, since I've had that permit and since I've showed it, in South Carolina and Colorado, I have not gotten a ticket. I've gotten out of it. I've gotten a warning. That is Corey Hutchins of the Colorado Independent. He says his concealed carry instructor in South Carolina actually told him that this would happen, that presenting a concealed weapons permit would get him out of a traffic ticket sometimes. Chief, have you seen that happen in Colorado or I suppose more specifically in Frederick? I haven't seen that happen. Uh, It may be that he would have received a warning in any case, whether he had his concealed weapons permit with him or not. Uh, It's my experience that most officers, especially around my area, prefer to give warnings rather than summons, especially for relatively minor violations that don't involve damaging somebody else's property or putting people at risk. Uh, But the two are really not the same. A concealed weapons permit is what it is. It's for carrying a weapon. The driver's license and the responsibilities that go with that are something else, and I'm pretty sure that if uh, a serious enough violation were committed, a summons would be issued. Corey Hutchins suggests that his luck, or whatever you want to call it, in getting out of traffic tickets after handling over his concealed weapons permit has happened, uh, at least in part, because of his race. I do wonder if, you know, it has a lot to do with what I look like. I am a white guy driving a Volkswagen. And Philando Castile, who was shot by the officer in St. Paul, is black. There are obviously a lot of facts unknown in the case, um, as you've suggested. But, uh, Chief, I wonder, in your role as head of police chiefs in the state, what do you think uh, is the role of race in traffic stops in Colorado? I would hope that it's neutral. But we we all know that there is implicit bias on the part of uh, many officers. Uh, we try to train to overcome that, and certainly training on that subject is continuing. Uh, I have seen that some officers, uh, white officers, will actually not write a ticket to someone of another race simply because they've been sensitized to that issue. It goes the other way. Uh It's a difficult problem, and it's going to be with us for a while yet. Do you do active work in Frederick, and and do you know of officers throughout the state who do active work on checking those biases? Uh, So you've acknowledged that they exist, and how in a daily routine do you work against them? The training that uh, we've been able to receive uh, within the past year has been been pretty on point in in that regard. Uh, and the Peace Officer Standards and Training Board of the state of Colorado is is also uh, mandating certain training that all officers have to complete 
in terms of uh, anti-bias, uh, racial profiling, and those those types of matters. Uh, and it continues. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you. Chief Gary Barber leads the Frederick Police Department in Weld County. He's also head of the Colorado Association of Chiefs of Police. Do you have a concealed weapons permit? And have you given it to an officer when you were pulled over for a traffic violation? What happened? We're interested in your experience. Email us, news at CPR.org. Again, news at CPR.org. Or you can tweet at Colorado Matters. Coming up next, the woman behind a major spiritual publishing house in Colorado, Tammy Simon. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Before Oprah Winfrey brought spiritual thinkers to a mainstream audience, there was Tammy Simon. She's grown her Louisville-based audiobook company Sounds True, from, as she puts it, a woman with her tape recorder, to a, quote, major publishing house. The company estimates that it reaches more than 2 million people a month, and it's growing, both in titles and staff. They're about to surpass 100 employees. Simon's label has struck relationships with big names, Thich Nhat Hanh, Andrew Weil, Carolyn Mace, and Eckhart Tolle. Today, we've asked Tammy Simon to share her biggest epiphanies from the last 30 years. She has brought audio clips that have changed the way she looks at life. And Tammy, welcome to the program. Thank you so much. Great to be with you. Before we get to those clips, a little backstory here. Sounds True began after your father died. Is that right? That's correct. About five months after his death, I received a small inheritance, about $50,000, and I used that to begin the company in April of 1985. What did you want to achieve? I wanted to do something worthwhile with myself. I wanted to make a contribution. I wanted to be of service. I wanted to bring my gifts forward. And, you know, quite honestly, I wanted a job, and I was pretty unemployable at the time. I see. So you created your own employment. And in the early days, it really was about cassette tapes and and what? Re- recording thinkers, I guess, uh, at events out in the community. Well, the phrase that came to me when I was praying about my life purpose and contribution was a very simple three-word phrase, disseminate spiritual wisdom. So that was my rallying cry when I began the business. That was what I wanted to do. I wanted to bring forward ideas and teachings that would be a lifeline for people in the way that spiritual wisdom teachings had been a lifeline for me in my young life. How had they helped you? There were books by authors like Herman Hesse, Alan Watts, and when I read those books, I encountered a world of philosophical insight that to me was a kind of homecoming. I felt, oh, people like this have explored what does it mean to care about our deathbed reflections as a centerpiece of our life, the meaning of our life. And when I read their books, I felt like I had friends in what was, for me, a pretty lonely universe. And so I wanted to provide that type of friendship, that type of torchlight for other people. Do you often contemplate your deathbed moments? I do. I think of at the end of my life, will I feel like I was fully used up, that I fully gave my gifts, that I burned as brightly as I could, that I realized the potential of my incarnation. Yeah, I think about that a lot. This idea of spirituality, you know, it's it's a broad term, um, sure. generic even. 
Do you subscribe to a particular doctrine or faith tradition? Is is there one no. a faith that you bring to sounds true? No, I would say early in my life I started meditating. So I discovered the practice of meditation. And in that, there is a direct contact with the world of inner knowing and guidance. So there's not a doctrine or a dogma, a particular faith tradition that mediates between me and a direct knowing of what I need to know in any given moment. And that, you could say, is the path of the mystics, of all great mystics. There's no intermediary in the life of a mystic. It's a direct contact, direct receiving. So do you find that consumers then of your audiobooks are of all different faiths, of no faith in particular, or what? What does your audience tell you about who receives the message? Sure. I think there are a lot of people right now who consider themselves, quote unquote, spiritual, but not religious. They don't identify within any faith tradition. There are also people within faith traditions who are drawn to what you could call the esoteric or the mystical aspect of that tradition, the mystical aspect of Christianity or Judaism. And I think people who are drawn to that esoteric or mystical aspect are also interested in what Sounds True has to offer. I also think we appeal to some people who just consider themselves atheists, but are interested in asking deep questions of personal inquiry. So I had you choose some of the most memorable teachings you've heard in the last 30 years. Let's dive in. A real theme, it sounds true, is answering the question, how can I be nicer to myself? Mm -hmm. Here is Kristen Neff, who teaches educational psychology at the University of Texas at Austin. She has focused her career on self-compassion. And in this recording, she says, the little voice in your head that's critical of yourself isn't all bad. Mm -hmm. One of the key issues is letting go of our view of self-criticism as the problem. Now, it is a problem. It causes a lot of suffering. But what we found in our research and in our teaching of self-compassion is that we need to have a lot of compassion for our self-critic. This voice, this constant nagging voice saying you're not good enough, you're, you need to do more of this, you need to more, do more of that. It actually comes from a desire to keep ourselves safe, to keep ourselves from being rejected, to maintain social relationships. It actually comes from a place of care for ourselves, but it's been twisted. And we think that if we criticize ourselves and we'll be able to control ourselves and force ourselves to be the person we want to be that will be safe and loved and accepted. So you first have to have compassion for this voice that's trying to keep ourselves safe through self-criticism, trying to motivate us, realize that it's not that effective. And then you can bring in the compassionate voice that says, you know, I want to keep you safe too but I'm going to do it through kindness and care as opposed to harsh self-criticism because it's actually a lot more effective. And once you do that, uh, everything shifts. And in fact, we, there's research showing that when you give yourself self-compassion, you lower your cortisol levels associated with self-criticism. So physiologically, you're changing as well as mentally. Why does that stick with you? 
I created this project called the Self-Acceptance Project, where I had the chance to interview over 20 different teachers on this topic of self-acceptance and self-compassion. And the reason I was so interested in it is because I have a really harsh inner self-critic, and all the meditation and all the prayer, we're still not getting at this self-critic. And that's why I put this series on, and Kristen Neff's comments particularly... That you should love your self-critic. Understand what it's trying to do for you. Uh It's trying to keep you safe. It's trying to keep you from feeling exiled from the group, which is a really terrible thing that any of us could experience. And so once we understand that this is biologically wired into us and that it's performing actually a function to protect us, to help us. Then we don't have to be like, oh, the critic, I just can't stand my critic, which is the way I was. The thing I have to get rid of entirely. Exactly. Instead, Uh I can actually have an attitude of respect and appreciation for this part of me that's trying to do something good. So Kristen Neff comes at this from a scientific perspective, an Mm -hmm. academic perspective, but you have speakers who deal in, shall we say, the unprovable. Uh, Tammy Simon, founder of the spiritual publishing house Sounds True in Louisville, when we asked you to choose some of your favorite recordings from the past three decades, you also chose one from Carolyn Mace, who describes herself as a medical intuitive. Um, She teaches that illness is tied to stress. Uh, She told you this story. I remember years and years ago when I was, I think maybe 19 years old, and I was driving home from Mars Candy Company where I worked in Chicago. And I did. I, I packed Snickers bars. That's how I worked through college, my way through college. And I worked 3.30 to midnight, six days a week. And I was driving home at midnight down Oak Park Avenue in Chicago. And as I was driving, I heard a voice, and the voice said, slow down, a red truck's going to run the next stop sign. And I did exactly that. I slowed down in a red truck, pickup truck, ran through the next stop sign. And in fact, it would have killed me because this truck was going so fast, and I was just in a tiny little car. But it wasn't until after the red truck ran that stop sign that I realized I'd heard a voice. And the voice was as clear as my voice with you. It wasn't that I was driving down thinking, am I hearing voices? I heard that voice. It was direct. It was a take no prisoner's voice. I said, slow down. That was grace. The presence of grace. What did you make of that story when you first heard it? That story and many of the stories that I've heard from Carolyn Mace have quite literally blown my mind and changed my rational view of what's possible in the world. And if you're really a truth seeker and an explorer of truth, and I I do think of myself that way, someone who cares about knowing what's true, I've had to be open to hearing all kinds of things from Sounds True authors and letting that information change me. Oh, that actually happened. And so I'm not interested in pinning it down and saying it means this, it means that. It means that we live in a world of mystery where some very mysterious things happen, and I'm open to hearing those stories and being open to that in my own life as well. Is this a form of evangelism? Depends what you mean by evangelism. What do you mean by that? 
I'm not sure, actually. It's clearly not a form of fundamentalism of any kind, mm-hmm. because Sounds True publishes audio and books and online courses with over 300 different authors. So there's so many different perspectives represented. So it's not fundamentalist in any kind. Would I say I'm on a mission of some kind? I would say I am. And that mission is to open people up, to open them up to their own inner guidance, their own inner knowing, and to break open some of the kind of locked down paradigms of what we think is possible when it comes to personal faith. Tammy Simon is my guest, founder of Sounds True, the major audio publishing house now based in Louisville. It's been around for uh, over three decades now. And uh, why don't we hear the final recording you chose, something that has stuck with you over these decades, from a teacher named Adya Shanti, who was born Stephen Gray. He's a student of Zen Buddhism. I love to share something my teacher's teacher said. Shunryu Suzuki said, the most important thing is to find out what is the most important thing. And it's one of those sort of nice, like, Eastern guy things to hear. Until you look at it, and you think about it, and then you realize this is actually something that's very profound. Certainly as a teacher, I found that it's very profound that the most important thing is to find out what is the most important thing. Until you found out what is the most important thing for you, you haven't touched the power within you. You haven't touched the spark within you. You haven't touched the fire. Not the thing that should be most important. Not the thing you think you should feel is the most important, but the thing that actually is the most important. The most important thing is to find out what is the most important thing. What is that for you? Truthfully, here, it's not the same in every given moment. It's not like, oh, I found out what is the most important thing. The box is checked, and I never have to ask that question Ah, again. this idea that the, the, the secret to life is somehow static throughout life. Yeah, that's not my experience. It's the question itself. What's the most important thing? And what is the most important thing right now? That is a very fruitful question. How do you answer it today? In my heart right now, the most important thing for me is to be loving, to actually tune to my heart and be loving. Over the years, Sounds True has produced about 1,500 titles with more than 500 spiritual thinkers. But in those 30 years, you never released your own audio program, Tammy Simon. Until now, it's called Being True. And what struck me is you've spent your career grounded in spiritual teachings, and you still struggle, which is really refreshing, by the way. Um, You're really honest about this on this recording. Here you are talking about how your search for truth got in the way of a loving relationship. Interestingly, at the time, this was about 12 years ago, I was planning to go on another long meditation retreat three weeks long, four weeks long. And there was my beautiful partner, Julie. We'd been together for about two years at that point. And a message that she kept repeating was something like this. You work a lot. You go on a lot of meditation retreats. Don't you want to spend time with me? And why don't you want to spend time with me? 
I don't get it. Reflect on that for me. The idea that in some ways um, a, a seeking of spirituality can be a block to intimacy. Can certainly be an escape. And I think for me there was both a, a deep quest to realize the infinitude, if you will, of love. But I was very comfortable experiencing that by myself on a meditation cushion, not actually in a deep intimacy for long periods of time with my beloved partner, who's now my beloved wife. It was terrifying for me. And one of the principles I've had is to go into the places that are terrifying, go into our fear, that that's where the most growth is. And so I had to dis- tell the truth that the most growth for me was in intimacy, not on the meditation cushion all by myself, where I was quite comfortable. Hmm. Thanks so much for being with us. Oh, Ryan, thank you so much for your good work and your beautiful smile. Tammy Simon is founder of the spiritual publishing house Sounds True, based in Louisville outside Boulder. It has been around now for just over three decades. Still to come, a painter whose career really took off after he became legally blind. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. During the Vietnam War, Jim Stevens was shot in the head. He survived. But decades later, the injury caused Stevens to lose nearly all his eyesight. It's like he's looking through a pinhole. Despite being legally blind, he has made a name for himself as an artist. His studio is in Wheat Ridge, west of Denver, and he has paintings featured this month in About Face, a portrait show at Denver's Cabal Gallery. Stevens joins my colleague Nathan Heffel. Jim, welcome to the program. Thank you. Explain how your war injury triggered vision loss more than 20 years after the fact. I tell everybody that the uh, Army taught me everything except how to duck. Either that or I slept through that class. Uh, the bullet fragment in my head uh, combined with a migraine and moved and cut off the supply blood supply to my visual cortex. And it happened very quickly. I lost my sight in about 30 minutes. Did you ever think that was a possibility following the injury? Absolutely not. Just it was a big surprise. So, of course, that rocks your world when, when that happens. You lost your vision. You retired from teaching at the University of Colorado. Your marriage ended, and you became a single parent. You say for many years you were you're pretty angry about all of that and, and didn't know what to do with yourself, but then you turned to martial arts, and that had a big impact on your life. How so? I had enrolled one of my daughters uh, in martial arts, and uh, my youngest told me one day that, uh, Dad, the martial arts has been very good for Sarah, I'll bet it could be good for you, too. And I felt about an inch tall and thought, okay, she's probably right, and went down there and asked if he could teach a blind man what he was teaching my daughter. And he did? He did. He did. And was it the the, um, the, the, the stability of that, of that, that, that helped you move through this? After about two years of that training, um, my daughters again came to me and said, Dad, you need to be doing something. You've never sat around before. Um, we think you should get back into your art. And uh, my sensei at the dojo also said, yes, you should get back into your art. And I told all of them, can't see. Right. Be, uh, but I spent the next two years, very frustrating two years, punching holes in canvases, throwing things across the room. Um, two years until I finally was able to figure out how to do my art again without the sight that I had. And you never went to art school. 
I had the good fortune of being able to study at the elbow of masters. I, my grandmother was a brilliant watercolorist, and she taught me to draw and paint. Um, I worked with Ed Dwight, the sculptor that uh, has done the Martin Luther King mm-hmm. in City yep. Park. I worked with him, learned sculpture from him uh, when he did his 12-foot bronze of Martin Luther King that stands at Morehouse College. And then I had the great opportunity to study with the Russian master stone and gem carver Vasily Konovalenko. Uh, and it's been that that expanded background studying with masters that gave me my love of art. Now, it, it's I want to note that you can still see very, very slightly. You say it's a pinhole that, that you can see left of your sight. How did how did you find a way to do art with such limited vision? In frustration, I started experimenting with lenses to try to help with my technical abilities. And, and uh, now when I work, I actually switch back and forth constantly between five different lenses. Huh. Some will bring things a little closer. Some will minify and push things away. Uh, but when I'm working, I literally have to scan. I have to piece together things uh, that make sure one the part that I have just completed fits with the next part that I'm working on. And and what you do is called monofilament paintings. And it, describe exactly what that is, because it's a unique concept. I have always enjoyed art that engages. And my monofilament paintings are paintings that people actually move around as if they were sculptures. And it's 129 strands across, eight layers deep of hand-painted monofilament line inside a clear acrylic case. Each layer is painted, shaded slightly differently than the layer in front, so it grabs the eye, pulls it down, and through all eight layers. And, and, and for lack of a better word, it's almost like fish wire, like like your fishing wire. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Each strand is anchored inside that acrylic case with sterling silver. When it comes to art, you often speak about empty space. What exactly is that, and, and why does it fascinate you so much, and why do you put that in, in your paintings? I see in, in empty space, and I paint the way that I see. Uh, to look at my work, you're actually looking at a realistic portrait of someone, but you're actually seeing that portrait through empty space. Hmm. And empty space becomes as much of a brush to me as the brush in my hand. The, the lack of color in that sense, the lack of anything there. I, I often leave negative space uh, see-through so that you're actually looking through and around, but the but the image comes together within that space. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. I'm speaking with Wheat Ridge artist Jim Stevens. His artwork is very intricate, and it's meticulous process here. Stevens' art career didn't take off, though, until after he lost nearly all of his vision. His line of sight is about the size of a pinhole. Jim, has art, in a way, helped you work through the emotions of losing your vision so late in life? I have to say that uh, I was angry for a long time after I lost my sight. Didn't exactly know how to cope with that. I guess there's a process that everyone goes through in trauma, and I couldn't get out of the anger stage. My daughters, I think, knew better than I did that if I got busy with something that I loved, it would help. And what happened was I got, and it started getting commission after commission after commission. I started getting so busy with my art that I actually forgot to be angry. I just was so busy, I forgot to be angry. 
Now, now there there must still be moments of of frustration and anger, right? Yeah, especially when I walk into a door jam or uh, you know, I could yeah trip on the stairs. <laughs> so, how are you working through that? Is that through the art then? You're, you're you're working through that through art, or is it just always going to be there? Do you think? I I think in a lot of respects, it's always going to be there. But when when we have something uh, you know pretty awful happen to us, uh, you end up with a choice. And my choice has been to uh, smile and get on with life because that's what needs to be done. You have two paintings up at the Cabal Art Gallery in Denver this month. Uh, this is for the gallery's portrait show called About Face. There's one you label as abstract living room art. Describe that for uh, me. <laughs> abstract linear. <laughs> linear, sorry. Yeah. Um, I actually, that's another style of painting that I've created. And it's a painting that's done on two different panels. The first panel, I do a realistic portrait Hmm. on a clear acrylic panel. But I leave all the negative space see-through. And then I design and paint an abstract painting on a Comatex panel. Once mounted, the uh, abstract behind the uh, realistic portrait, it's actually the abstract painting in the background that's creating all the shading that one sees when you're looking at the painting. So could you, in, in a sense, put like a piece of paper in front of it and, and, and the painting would change in a sense? If you slid a piece of paper between the two paintings, the realistic portrait would literally disappear. When you pull, the, when you pull that paper out, the shading reappears and comes through the clear acrylic portrait. How did you become fascinated with monofilament? How, how did that come about? I have to thank my six-year-old grandson. Six-year-old grandson? Yeah. yeah, uh, He's very proud to tell everybody that he gave Papa the idea. Uh, I was helping him untangle his fishing pole one day, his little toy fishing pole, and uh, wasn't doing a very good job of it, but the clouds went over and caused the monofilament on my fingers to ripple. Hmm. I could not get that thought out of my head. And I spent the next five months, trial and error, throwing things, much wailing and gnashing of teeth, until I finally created art from that concept. So does your, your, is your grandson, you said, is that right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. He's my inspiration. He's your inspiration. <laughs> is, has, he, has he been a subject of your, of your artwork before? Uh, he's been both subject and uh, I would say, you know, my biggest catalyst. Uh, he comes out to my studio all the time and wants to know what I'm doing. And you do other forms of art as well, not just this monofilament. Um. With my background being so varied, I enjoy sculpture. I enjoy, I enjoy carving. I enjoy scrimshaw. And scrimshaw, uh, what is that? The etching on bone. Mm. Uh, it originally was the etching on ivory, uh, but it's etching on different materials. You also recently learned that you won a first place prize in this year's National Veterans Creative Arts Competition, as well as best in show in the fine arts category. That national art show is in Jackson, Mississippi, in October. How is it uh, the, the the accolades for your work? How is that affecting you in a sense? It's been it's been amazing. Um, last year, my work uh, took first place best of show at the Best of Santa Fe in Denver, uh, best of show at the, the Boulder Art Association's annual Labor Day art show. Uh, I also won uh, nationally the Sergeant Art Supply Company first place award for art for 2015. So is there next uh, steps? Is there new art that you're going to be bringing out that's, that's like monofilament, or is this what you're going to be doing for the next you know, 20 years? I don't know what I'll be doing tomorrow. Um, 
But I do know that uh, I have a one-man show at the Georgia Omar Gallery, the Habitat Gallery in Denver, in November. Jim, thanks so much for being here. Great. Thank you. Wheat Ridge visual artist Jim Stevens is legally blind. He spoke with my colleague Nathan Heffel. You can see some of his paintings this month at Denver's Cabal Gallery. The show is called About Face, and there are photos of his work at cprnews.org. I'm Ryan Warner. That's Colorado Matters for today from CPR News.